Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am here with a very interesting guest in Charlie Mann, who is the president and head coach of Great Legal Marketing. Me and Charlie have chatted a bit before. I really, really enjoy his philosophy and a lot of things and some really fantastic perspective for people on any stage of their law firm growth journey. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast, Charlie. Oh, well, Jan, I'm super excited to talk with you. I mean, let's give credit to you as well. You've got a really cool backstory, which I hope people have seen at your website of, you know, starting up companies, investors, all of this stuff. So I really like where you come from on all this. So I'm excited to talk with you. All right. Fantastic. Charlie. Okay. So first question to get the ball started, a little bit of a rapid fire. What is a piece of advice? And you know, I, I, I won't say the one, cause it'll be hard to narrow down. What is the least, what is the piece of advice that you see being given to attorneys that you disagree with the most? Oh, I love this. I like also that you're like, how do we get people to either fall in love with this episode right away or turn this episode <laughs> off right away, right? So Rack the shotgun, baby. Let's go. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I got a traps course down the street that I like to shoot at, actually. So the number one thing here, and I know that when I give this particular diatribe, that definitely some people are going to feel like, oh, finally, someone is preaching directly to me and other folks are going to feel like, no, just just vehemently disagree with me. And the worst piece of advice I hear is just create value. That bit of advice drives me crazy because it's not as simple as just creating value. I can't tell you how many people just put like good stuff out in the market, but they do it without thinking critically about what's the outcome. Why am I trying to put this thing out in the market? Like let's say, let's say we're doing a webinar, right? So we're doing a webinar. And if all we've heard the advice is just create value, so we get on the webinar and we just start teaching right away, what's going to happen is people are going to hear your points, absorb your information, but not be really all that interested and probably not really select you as the provider as opposed to, okay, I'm going to do a webinar. Yes, I do want to create value. That's why I always say the worst piece of advice is just create value as opposed to create value. Create value is part of the process. But if all I do is focus on value and I never think about where is this going? This is going to be a way to get someone as a new client, then I am going to lose out because there are other people in the market who are thinking critically about their processes. If I get a prospect on a webinar, say, how is this engineer to create credibility, affinity, likability, authority, and then maybe create some type of story connection and then show some type of process that I can help them out with, how I can alleviate a pain point in their life or how to make their life better. Then I'll teach them some stuff. And then I'm going to tell them, hey, there's one of three things that should happen right now. Either great, you got some really good information in this moment, and I'm really happy that you learned that stuff. Or two, you're wondering, why did I listen to this? It doesn't even apply to your life. Or more than likely, number three, you're really interested in this. You're not sure how to do it yourself and you realize that you need help. That's where our story, rather than being my story and your story, it is now our story. And I want us working together on your legal issue. That would be one of the biggest pieces of advice that I would that drives me nuts, especially because the social media folks, Jan, the social media folks who are just like, just put out good content. And there's so much good content out there. <laughs> Yeah, hundred percent. That's the other thing too. It's just like it kind of leads to that old um, bad marketing company uh, standby. You know, just give it another month. These things really take time. <laughs> it's it's kind of this nebulous thing. But like, um, you're reminding me of a quote that I read last night, and it was, I believe, from Peter Thiel. But he said, "There's basically he calls it the fundamental business equation. So you have two variables. One is X, which is the amount of value that you create, and the second variable is Y, which is the amount of value that you're taking home, i.e., your profit, whatever, and <laughs> the real twist in this is X and Y are independent variables. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. And I also say like, just practically speaking, what, you know, what we've been seeing in the marketplace, as far as like the, you know, just kind of you know, the bad things we see that. And like, this is a, a line that we use is like, if, you know, if you don't have an ability to start a conversation after something that you're doing, 
well, congratulations. You just did all the heavy lifting for your competitors in the market, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. That's such a good point, Jan. And I love that. I love that Peter Thiel quote that, you know, X is not Y. Like those are independent variables that should seem so obvious. Look, my mom is a math teacher and she would be shaming me right now. I mean, she's busy teaching calculus and stuff like that. And the fact that I didn't immediately click in when you were saying X and Y and come to that conclusion myself, shame on me. But that makes so much sense because the real value you provide as, as a law firm owner and as an attorney is the value when someone actually hires you. That should be where your maximum impact is. The point of the value that you create ahead of time in the market is really demonstration of, if it's this good when you're on my webinar, imagine if you were actually my client. Like That's the impact that should be demonstrated. If you look around anywhere, and I think some of the best examples are in the the diet, the fitness, and the financial industries, because those are just raw, ruthless marketers out there. They have mastered the, I'm going to drop a little bit of value in front of you. And then I'm going to tease out like, hey, imagine if you actually were working with us, or if you were using our system or following our guidance, the impact would be tenfold of what you just got right now. Mm. And that's a good thing too. I mean, like as far as like what we, uh, I mean, it's a fantastic thing. And I really wish more attorneys would kind of look into other industries like this, but you kind of just cut to the absolute quick on that. Like those are definitely just the margins that those people have to work on in terms of like, they really is no, uh, you know, room for fat on like those marketing strategies. But if I had to kind of hazard a guess, like I think on some level, it's like, it's, if there's a difference, it's not because it's easier to create value. I'd say in a lot of senses, it's, it's, it's more challenging, but I would say emotionally speaking, it's easier to go ahead and ask, okay, oh yeah, here, look, I have this cookie. You know, we, we made the bake sale, blah, blah, blah. And never asked to say, Hey, look, by the way, would you want to move forward? I mean, can you comment on that at all? Like, what do you think is in people's heads that's preventing them from moving forward with actually collecting on the value they're creating? I'm giving like, like amen hands over here. Like we're in church and, and you're preaching <laughs> uh, because absolutely that is the ask, right? To use those two little words, the ask is a critical difference maker in the willingness to ask for, become a client, right? Like it, attorneys, sometimes they really only want to do this after every single box is checked, after they feel entirely safe in that moment. But you want to know, you know, some of the best law firm owners, the ones who grow these big practices, they are unafraid of the ask. They ask for becoming a client earlier than other people do. They get people to take action. You know, there's this idea of, of follow-up marketing, right? Follow-up sequences in marketing overall. You know, you put in your first name and email address to get some report and you're going to get a string of emails over the next seven to 10 days. Well, we reframe that to talk about follow-through marketing. The reason we change that is because if someone is reaching out to your law firm, they are trying to make some type of commitment to make their life better in some form or fashion. It could be they've been injured in a car accident. It could be major life event happened. And so they are finally ready to get their estate plan done, or they just got a big inheritance and they want to know how to protect that, or they're battling for an inheritance or the credit, the, the credit card debt is piling up and they're thinking about bankruptcy, right? They, they know that they need to make some type of commitment in their life. And your job as an attorney is to help them be decisive and follow through on that commitment. So if you can reach out to them, if you can make the ask of them earlier on and help them take action, that is so beneficial. It's one of those things in our life, a lot of us might have that friend. So I'm, I'm bad at kind of managing friendships, Jan. It's, it's just not baked into me. So I need to have people in my life who proactively reach out to me and say, hey, Charlie, do you want to go do X, Y, or Z? And I appreciate that in my life, even though I'm terrible at reaching out. I love having those people in my life who will reach out to me and I will gamely participate with that and everything. I'll pay for the whole occasion, right? Because I can bring that to the table, but I can't bring the, I'm going to get this outing organized to the table. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like one of these things too, is like, I feel like people are afraid to work, uh, reach out because you know, maybe they had a bad experience with being pressured in a sales conversation or something like that. But like at the end of the day too, it's like, I was on a call a talk with a, uh, with a, an attorney the other day too. It's like, one of the things that you always hear is like, you know, you have to sell yourself first. And if you really believe in what you do and why would you be in the market? If you didn't, you realize that helping them file that bankruptcy, make that estate plan, 
you know, pursue that case that they had as a plaintiff. It's like, that is the best outcome they can have. And as annoying or, you know, pressury or as used car sales <laughs> as you feel in that moment, at the end of the day, if you want to serve that person, it's, it's your moral imperative to send that friggin' email. It's like, I don't know how people don't get this sometimes, right? Yeah, we're so aligned there. You know, we've used that, that phrase, moral imperative, moral obligation. If you believe that you are the best possible option for the right type of client in your community, you should do everything in your power to connect with that individual. You know, we believe that, right, at Great Legal Marketing. I'm sure you believe that at Case Fuel. Like, there are law firms that we know that we can help, and we have to do everything in our power to connect with those people because we know we bring something to the table that will uniquely improve their lives. And when you live in that sphere, when you live with that level of conviction and you stop viewing yourself as just another lawyer and you really say, I am for this particular type of person. And I truly believe that the way I do things and the outcomes I get are better than anyone else. And some people will chalk that up to arrogance, but I say that that's the difference between being an employee and an entrepreneur or owner. That is world changing inside of your head. And when you change what is inside of your head, you start to change the externalities all around you because you stop dancing around it, just like you were saying, yeah. And you stop kind of like equivocating and feeling like, oh, I need to make sure everything's balanced. You just go, this is the best possible outcome. Are you on board? Because I already know I'm on board. Yeah, hundred percent. And like from marketing all the way through the actual consultation conversation, like that is something that absolutely comes across. And just kind of as like a quick uh, aside, like I, I had a podcast that we did a little while back, and it was basically about like you know, there's people who are doing absolutely nothing with their lives that love mindset. And then there's people that don't really give a hoot about mindset that are, you know, somewhere in the middle. And then, but you see people at the top and you've had the benefit of working with some tremendously successful firms and it swings all the way right back to mindset, which makes you think it's like at the end of the day, like, I think people don't realize it, but it's like, there's another thing that I've, I've uh, heard before, but it's, you know, all business development on some level is personal development. And it's really tough to get to the point where you're consistently doing it without those things. And that's one very, very specific bridge from the mental to the tactical. It's like there are really, really well proven studies that show that, you know, the amount of conviction that you can speak on a, a sales conversation, which boils down to your mindset, is going to communicate more information in a lot of ways in the words that you're saying. So it is absolutely super imperative. And oh yeah, totally, totally viable in that. John, <laughs> I love that you you kind of brought out that way that someone's mind stretches. When you've got people who might run smaller businesses and are sort of addicted to the mindset stuff, right? Like they're always reading the next book. They're always watching the next motivational talk because so much of what they need in their life is externalized instead of what we would call the internal locus of control. They need that outside motivation validation for their point of view because it's not tied intrinsically enough to what is on the inside. And you can change that, by the way, right? Like people who have that external locus of control, you can, you can alter that. It takes work and it takes agreeing with yourself that I will drive from the inside. Now I'm going to seek outside support, right? I mean, there's a reason that I have a lot of private clients and a ton of mastermind members at Great Legal Marketing is because they need a coach, right? They need someone who is there to help bring out the best in them because just like you said, Business development is personal development. No, by the way, personal development for a business owner is also business development at the same time. It is, it is one of the great chicken or the egg issues in business. When you have that smaller practice where someone is really addicted to, like they can quote all of the, all of the Carnegie's, they can quote all the Napoleon Hill, all that type of stuff, but they're not putting rubber to the road, then that's where they get stuck. On the other hand, someone who's way up at the top, right? Like, They've got the multi seven figure practice for them. They've probably applied that mindset consistently. And what they really need from mindset at that point is honestly, it's scary at times. Few people acknowledge this enough. It is scary to have a seven, eight million dollar law firm and be atop that and know that, like, hey, this thing needs to continue to function. Like, my livelihood is invested in this thing. If the whole thing goes, I've got all of this property, whether leased or owned, I've got staff salaries are still going to need to be paid a certain amount. Oh, by the way, all these cases that I've gotten here still need to be worked up. So if it all goes kablooey, it's all on me. That's why mindset is critical up at that level. But the space that you pointed out, Jan, it happens, really happens right around like the 
$300,000 mark in annual revenue is when it starts to happen. It really creeps up as we get closer to a million dollars in annual revenue is the, should I be working on mindset or should I be practically applying things? And the answer is you somehow need to do 75% of both at the same time. Interesting. And this actually, you're teaming up for a perfect segue because you guys have a really interesting classification of the different sizes. And one of the things I love about your guys' approach is that you realize that it's different things for different steps. Mm. So could you take me through how you guys classify the major stages of a law firm's growth? And then, well, let's just kind of, let's just kind of set that one up. <laughs> we'll go from yeah. there. Yeah. Perfect. We have what we call hero firms and icon firms. Predominantly hero firms are in the six figure range. And icon firms are those in the seven-figure range. We have a few firms in our membership who are in the eight figures, but we predominantly work with six and seven-figure firm owners. And the reason we divided this up between the hero and icon programs is actually a little bit in the name. In a six-figure firm, one that you're trying to grow to a million per year, or you're trying to create what we would call a super profit firm, so much of the growth comes from the individual running the practice. You have to be the hero where you are, you've got your entire team kind of holding onto your arms and legs and you're not in a bad way, but like they need you as the leader, like to push forward through the oncoming forceful blast that is trying to move you back. And you have to be the hero that's solved so many of the problems. Oftentimes you are very much closing clients. You are the main generator of marketing. Uh, you intimately oversee operations and probably do a lot of casework yourself as the owner. But as we transition to a seven-figure firm, we have to stop always feeling like it must be me, the owner, doing all the work, being the individual hero. And now I must transcend to icon. And an icon is, it's more like you're at the top of the Justice League. Or if you're more of a Marvel fan, you now become more of a Nick Fury or Iron Man type of character where you're running the operation and you're telling the other heroes, now your employees, what they're supposed to be doing. And you're overseeing the bigger picture of everything. When you're a hero, you are sort of at a 3x multiplier. Your one action has a three times multiplier. When you're an icon, you should set it up where your one action has a 10 times multiple because you have better systems in place. You have better staff in place. So fundamentally, who you are as an individual has to shift. And that's one of the core differences between the hero and icon levels. Yeah. And if you get to the point where you're at the icon level and you're kind of hanging on to the hero mentality, that could actually be a situation where you're losing revenue, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and Jan, you and I have had the opportunity to talk in the past and, you know, you, you've heard me talk a little bit about revenue per employee and that kind of gets worked in here. So the idea of revenue per employee, which is really helpful in this conversation, is it's a way to do a health check on your law firm, right? So if I'm running a, let's say a $2 million law firm, and I have a certain number of people in it. Let's say I have 20 people in it. So this is really interesting. I can look at a law firm that say does $2 million a year in annual revenue. If they have 20 people in it, I know it's an unhealthy firm because the average revenue per employee of that type of firm should be in the range of $150,000 per employee. So we should actually be closer to about 13 to 15 employees, give or take. And that helps us better understand, like, are you stuck in that hero mentality? where you are doing everything, because I'm sure you've encountered this, Jan, where you're working with like an attorney who has, say, a $1.5, $1.7, $2 million law firm. And they're just saying, like, I don't have time for, for anything else. I have to do all of this stuff. And it's like, why? Why? Do you understand that you're at the head of a business? Why do you have to do all of that stuff? And it's usually because they hired someone and they were like, hey, you're going to be my receptionist, right? Let's go with a very simple, basic position. You're going to be my receptionist. And they never maximize the growth of that particular person or that particular position. And so they end up hiring all these almost like micro hires, right? Like little people who handle very specific, tiny tasks. And I'm still thinking in the hero brain. And so I start thinking to myself, well, yes, I could have that person maybe do some outreach for me to other attorneys to set up some referral relationships, but I don't want to burden it. I'll take care of it. I'm the hero. I will handle it myself. Instead of understanding, no, I'm the icon now. I can have other people go out and represent my message to the world. And it's scary. Let's be honest. It's a little bit scary on because when you have a six-figure firm, 
you're almost running a family. It's your business family at that point. And mm. a lot of us fall in love with that kind of intimate relationship. And that we really love having these people around and we know their families and we know so much about their lives. And we feel so responsible for the incomes that they derive from us in the, the owner position. And then all of a sudden you're doing 1.2 million a year. Then you're doing 1.4 and something feels weird. You kind of know that you're stuck in neutral and you have to start looking around at the people that you have and you realize, oh, I can't have a family here anymore. I have to have a business. Mm. And that sometimes means telling a family member they need to go find a new family. And that is so, so difficult. Like, let's never underestimate the emotional turmoil that a business owner, I'm sure you can relate to that, Jan, that a business owner goes through in those moments in the move from six to seven figures from family to business. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of interesting you bring that up too, because you, you got me thinking about another thing, which is like, okay, so we're talking about kind of the discomfort of asking for the sale, obviously a really important thing, but we're kind of up against some pretty primal motivations within one's brain where they're just like, you know, on some level, when you're running a business, you, there's nothing that you, you can't really tell whether you guys weren't spending the last two weeks hunting mammoths, right? And to, to <laughs> to yeah, exile yeah. somebody from the tribe is something that your every single cell in your brain is probably telling you not to do. But um, you know, that's it kind of leads me to like a yeah, really specific question. It's like when you're coaching people through this transition, what would be kind of the characteristics of somebody who might be perfect for the role under seven figures and really doesn't have a place in, you know, the seven figure plus firm? And how would you recommend people make those decisions? Really fantastic question because that staffing issue is one of the big differences between a six-figure firm and a seven-figure firm. So when you're a six-figure firm, you tend to, and we've all heard this language echoed by a business owner, I need people who can wear many hats. And so when you've got a, let's say half a million dollar law firm, you're going to hire someone to answer your phones, do some legal work, maybe even pitch in a little bit on your marketing. And if they have past experience doing a little bit of bookkeeping, they might chip in there. Makes perfect sense, right? You have every business has kind of the same suite of functions that have to happen within generating new clients, the operations, both legal operations and general operations, administrative work, et cetera. And then you have your finance department as well. And all businesses, all legal businesses, law firms will have these things. But when you're a smaller firm, you can't have a specialist in every single one of these roles. You need to have people who wear many hats. And once you transition then to seven figures, what you find is you can't have a bunch of people who wear many hats because they start competing for territory and they become inefficient because as you get bigger, you get efficiencies from specialists. This is the amazing thing. When all of a sudden you're at the point where, let's say it's a personal injury law firm, you're at the point where you can hire someone whose only job it is to request and retrieve medical records for new clients. That becomes a multiplier of productivity. That sounds crazy to someone who's running you know, a $600,000 offer. Like a single individual just doing medical records, that's like a, I'll outsource that project type of thing, which makes perfect sense. But as you grow, having specialists in your business, mammoth difference. Let's say it's a family law firm. As you grow, at some point or another, you have to hire a sales person because your attorneys who are trying to churn out billable hours for you and you as the owner trying to manage the whole place, you can't be taking every new client call and appointment. You need a salesperson who can represent you phenomenally in those conversations. And that's something that you would never think about hiring for the most part at a six-figure firm. But that's exactly what the difference is. Generalists who wear many hats versus specialists. And what happens is, and you alluded to this, Jan, is you might have someone who's like an office manager type, right? Like they've got their hands in a whole lot of stuff. They've answered phones for you. They've probably done some bookkeeping for you. They've helped out with a ton of different projects for you. And as you grow, as you get up into that million dollar plus mark, you start finding that that person has a hard time letting go of some of these responsibilities. This is the most common conflict that we see. Someone who's been with you for maybe five, seven, 12 years, 
And you need them to let go, but also you're having a hard time having that conversation with them where you have to say like, legitimately, you have to let that go. Because what we don't understand is the story in that employee's head is, if I let go of this responsibility, I'm going to get fired because that's my value that I bring to the table. And they don't understand the way that a business owner understands that, ah, by letting that go, I get to be better at all this other stuff. They just think I'm letting something go. And so that just makes it easier for him to fire me. You have to either, frankly, turn that position over or you have to coach that person through that transition. I will say that is that one particular office manager style position. I can tell you horrible stories about how that went awry, including a seven-figure embezzling issue that happened in a law firm where the office manager had been embezzling from the company for years and years and years before they finally fired her and only found out about it after the fact because they switched accounting software about a couple months later, and they had to file charges against her. The attorney had to put his personal money into clients' trusts right away and handle interest on all that and everything. Like That's what happens is you, you get that employee and they become, they become a cornered animal in many ways. And you never know what's going to happen when that happens. That's pretty crazy. I was going to say too, I mean, it's got to be such a common situation because I'd, I'd guess that's probably one of the first roles that most solo attorneys are going to hire, right? Yeah, someone who moves just stuff, right? Make my life easier. It's almost, it frankly would be better described as an executive assistant when it's a smaller law firm, but it's mm. sort of an office manager type. All right. And just to get like, uh, to, to kind of get a little bit more zoomed in on that, for the conversations, or I guess the, the transitions that you've seen go well, like what are the the major notes of, of coaching somebody who, you know, has a good heart, they, they're willing to let go of the right stuff, but how, how would you kind of decide where that person goes and how to encourage them to take steps where they're, they're going to be ready for law firm 2.0. <laughs> oh, wow. I really, I love this question. Honestly, like I really love this question because I don't get to talk about this all that often, this particular, like that framework that you just gave me, which is if you have that person, you want to help transition them. The best thing that you can do is lay out a map of all of the essential functions of your business and map out who is occupying what roles right now. And take that map and go to the person basically say, right now, you sit in five of these seats. We want to get you down to being great at two of these seats. Because as you can see, other folks are going to be in one or two of these seats. When you look at this map, knowing that you are in five, what are the two spaces that you believe you bring unique value to? And then I'm going to share with you my perception of the two spaces I see you bringing unique value to. And you want to merge those, right? As best as possible, you want to merge their perceived specialties for themselves and how you see them being at their best. And showing them that like, hey, this is, this is our roadmap right now. And I want to put you to your best skill sets. And you got to be honest with me. You got to say, hey, the business is kind of fundamentally changing, right? You know, we, we're growing, which means that we need people kind of more focused on certain roles within the business. And I want you to be part of that picture, but we have to select the right roles for you. The other thing to do is run them through personality profiles. You may not have done that when you were a six-figure firm. You know, I am not a zealot for any particular personality profile, whether it's a DISC, Colby. We use uh, Jay Henderson of Real Talent Hiring for our hires. I don't know. There, there are dozens of them out there. So the whole point there is just to better understand your person because certain roles require different uh, task frameworks. Some people are very task oriented. Some people are very uh, outcome or strategy oriented. Like I'll bet Jan, you and I are very strategy oriented and we need to have in our lives much more task oriented people, people who love a to-do list. I don't know about you. I'm not a huge fan. I don't want a long to-do list. I want to like go into work and have three things I'm supposed to do today, not 19. Yeah, I could. I, <laughs> that's really funny. We're going through a big personal productivity thing within the business. So like, I, I got probably 45 minutes of material <laughs> on my, on my, my, my <laughs> well, task. Well, tell me about right. it. So like, what are, what are you doing in terms of that personal productivity stuff for the team? Okay. Super good question. And um, yeah, this is interesting. Okay. So basically I read GTD or getting things done by David Allen about 10 years ago. And I've been running some version of that for like my personal operating system ever since we've basically morphed that into a team function of this. We're mostly using Asana, 
but basically are uh, like most of the people, like I'm, I'm not a, a crazy authoritarian on how people manage their personal lives. So I, people have flexibility to manage their own function of that past the point where it's the only rule that we have is that if it has to, if it exists and there's a dependency with somebody else, it has to exist on Asana. I don't care about your email. I don't care about your Slack. Asana is the canonical reference. So for me personally, I actually, I've been using Evernote as a system for that for a while, but the way that I divide things is basically I've got my broader to-do list, which was strictly defined as actions I could take right now. In the GTD tradition, I use a waiting on sort of a dependency list too. So stuff I will have to do, but I can't do right now because person condition, it's, et cetera, it's external to me, hasn't been met. I have a nice to have, which would kind of be in the, I guess the important, not urgent uh, Eisenhower matrix quadrant. And then basically I, I, I take my to-do list as far as stuff that I can move forward to right now. And if I'm pulling up my to-do list right now, I have eight total tasks on that. And then basically I will move probably two or three of these, depending on the day to my to-do list today. So for me, I like to have the feedback loop of winning on some level every day. So if I have my three most important tasks for the day, I will get those done 80% plus completion um, for, for most days that I have. So, and that's the thing too, for me in the past, I've had situations where it's just like, if I'm looking at a to-do list and this is a pretty uh, easy week, all things considered, but like pretty much you know, it doesn't really get your juices flowing the same way if you've got your like 20 item to-do list down to 17, you know, it's like, even if that's the same exact progress as if you move from three over to a separate list. So <laughs> I trick my brain into to letting itself think it's winning. And then, uh, you know, it keeps me, <laughs> it keeps me getting up in the morning. So. Yes. Oh, I love that. I trick my brain into, into thinking that it's winning. Cause that that's a funny part about our brains, right? Like they can be tricked. It's like the placebo effect in a way, right? The, it's amazing what our brains can do. The fact that you can be like, Hey, here's three tasks, by the way, brain, you're going to ignore the other 17, but here's three, you're going to get these done. Aren't you excited about that brain? And the brain goes, Oh, Oh yeah, Jan, I'm super excited, buddy. Let's get these done. And at the end of the day, when it gets done, you get to pat your brain on the head, which is just kind of a strange metaphor. I don't know why I'm going down this analogy. So deep here, Jan, but it gets excited. It's like, yeah, we did great. And you sleep better you feel better. And man, as a business owner, right? Like that is everything goes back to that. It's like, we're, we're closing a loop. We didn't even intentionally open of personal productivity. Personal development is business development and business development is personal development. When you get better at business, you're going to love your personal life more. When your personal life is more aligned, you're going to love your business life more. It's just amazing how that works, which by the way, you know, as you're doing that, so we use Trello instead of Asana, Mm. but I really like Asana. I'm over here taking notes on all this stuff. And I hope that other, like that should be another signal to folks um, in general. I think we didn't really go down this necessarily, but one of the ways to, to be successful as a law firm owner is be curious about people outside of your industry. Like Jan, you've got, you know, your, your company is not my company, right? Like we do, we're in the same kind of general industry, but we come at it from different spheres. Well, why would I ever rule out the way that you're productive? right? Like I want to learn from every person that I encounter. You mentioned earlier, the financial, you know, piggybacking off of all that stuff, pay attention to outside the industry. It makes a world of difference. That's so cool what you're doing with the personal productivity. So how's the team sort of adjusting to all of that? Oh, it's good. I mean, it's, it's been a while. So it's like, basically I've kind of got my diehards. So it's like, I think that the version that I've been running of GTD X Evernote, which I didn't come up with, by the way, there's a, for anyone who's, uh, who's taking notes on this, the secret weapon.org. I don't know who made this, but they made it a long time ago. <laughs> it's basically, and I don't, I, you know, I've, I've adapted it to, to kind of my own uses, but um, basically that, that whole overview that I had earlier more or less covers the basis. That being said, so I started doing that in 2011 ish, I think. And I've been on it ever since. Like if I go to my trash bin, I've completed once this loads, it's probably north of, I don't know, 15 or 16,000 tasks. since uh, uh, 19,650 tasks have been completed since then. So I have uh, on my team, it's kind of funny. So um, a lot of the people that are uh, like closer to direct reports to me have like adapted this. Um, But that's the thing too, at the end of the day, and like, this is kind of a segue with the thing earlier. It's like, I think honestly, it's like, the stuff that you provide it, it's very weird to me. And it's, we're, we're pretty much probably in the same boat on this one, Charlie. It's like, to me being, I was, uh, I've worked at a couple of jobs. This isn't the only, you know, I, I was not just only starting businesses my whole life, but like I resented micromanaging like crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's really weird 
to work with people that don't necessarily have the same wiring as I do, because the stuff that I'm doing to be considerate is actually ruinous as far as like how they actually want to be, you know, how they prefer working. So, and it's kind of been the things like, I guess, like sort of the people who are like psychographically a little bit more similar to me have adopted it. But I mean, at least for me, the responsibility to the team has been making sure that everyone has a usable common space. And that's been good. So whenever we bring somebody on, uh, typically there's going to be a couple and like, we have a lot of really weird <laughs> requirements or stuff too. So it's like, basically we want to make sure that all the tasks that we have are written in active voice. So basically we never have invoice as an item on anyone else's to-do list because what am I supposed to do with invoice? That's initiating, a, that's requiring a conversation that is, and the, the whole thing too, like to, as far as setting up the norms that we've had within the business, it's like basically you know, it's just, don't be a jerk. If you're, if you're doing work, that's going to require somebody to follow up with it. That's a jerk move, but don't do that. Don't, don't, don't force other people to clean up your mess. So again, setting the norms is one thing, but yeah. And the other times too, it's like, you know, we need to be really specific. So typically when people are hopping in, we're onboarding a couple new employees this week. Um, I know at one point we're going to have the conversation with, okay, cool. Make sure you're writing this in active voice. I don't know what invoice means. I know what update invoice is. I know what send invoice is. I know what blah, blah, blah. And then just other kind of little details. But I think basically, you know, like anything else, if you can give people a reason why it's the compliance will, will fall in place. And at the end of the day, it's like, yeah. I mean, I don't claim to have the most efficient system in the world. It's a local maximum at the moment, uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> but pretty much like, you know, it's, but again, it's like at the end of the day, it's like, uh, do I want to uh, go through this weird mental gymnastics of, of figuring out how to make this active phrasing. But at the end of the day, if that allows the team to get things done at a time that's faster for me, I'm going to look better to my client. I'm going to have an easier conversation. When we get to our team meeting on, on Friday, uh, I'm not going to be getting sideways glances from people on Zoom. So it's like, it's all, it's all everyone's a big happy failure. We're trying to get the, everyone on the same line with that. Yeah. And I, I just got to say, one of the things I love that you said there was you mentioned the understanding that not everyone has the same psychographic profile as you, the owner. And that actually kind of is a fundamental idea of the difference between the family and the business. Because in a family, we tend to be alike with each other, right? Because mm -hmm. we're raised in the same sphere. We have common language. We have years of built up rapport and everything. When you move into having a business, you do have to engineer for, oh, I'm going to have some personality types in here that I don't understand that if I had their job, I would go insane. I would go absolutely, I would never do that in a million years, but that doesn't make that job worse or better. It's just a function that can be fit by the right person. I have team members who have to, you know, like answer the phones and have to kind of keep up with certain like individualized tasks. And I think to myself, man, I would never want to do that. But for them, they're excited about kind of this these different little activities through the day, right? Like these different little challenges that when it's done, they get to check the box and go, that's done. I satisfied that. And I'm like, it would drive me bonkers, but it doesn't matter. I have to get out of the way and let them be great at that because it actually is better for our customers overall. Yeah, hundred percent. And this is actually something like, you know, this is kind of a conundrum that I've thought about a lot. I think one of the things I've noticed scaling the business is that there was a, there's a time when basically I was the person who did every task the first time. I'm guessing at some point it doesn't make sense to do that. So how do you recommend people making that transition and how, like, you know, I kind of think this, uh, I, I refer to this as the, uh, the unjust mechanic dilemma. How do you determine success in a field that you don't know anything about? <laughs> Ooh, so, Oh, that's really cool. Um, <laughs> you are, I love these questions. So it's funny. We just created this kind of tool for our members to use that we call our outcome process tool. So, a lot of times as we're coming up, like you're exactly right. You are the first person to do each process, but isn't that such an interesting moment when you get to the point where you look at like, Hey, we're going to fundamentally change the way that we handle brief writing in our firm, like the flow on all of that. And I'm not even going to be involved in setting up the brand new process. Someone else is going to set up the brand new process, set up brand new expectations. Maybe it's a department head of our PI department or whatever it is. When the owner is always focused on process, that's where you end up having friction that slows down a business because they are always obsessed with like, no, 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 we, we should do it this way. Because like they have previous experience because when you build an entity like what you've built, Jan, you do have so much experience with such a wide variety of 
tasks within the business that you probably could come in, even if it were a process that were entirely brand new for you. Like I don't, I don't code mobile apps, right? But I'm pretty sure I have enough experience in a variety of other things that I would have an opinion about how to go about creating a mobile app, even though I should get out of the way out of it. Now, what I should do if we're trying to create a mobile app is instead my responsibility should be to define the outcome of what I want. What is What does finished look like? How do customers feel about this product? What type of interactions do they value? What is the importance of it being a very smooth function versus sometimes actually introducing friction in order to create levels of difficulty, but that's a whole other psychological discussion. What does the outcome look like? Who is using it? What purpose does it fill? What is the general scale at which this should exist? And then go and find someone who's great at building a mobile app and don't dictate how they get to where you want to go. Just dictate where they're supposed to end up. And that difference between a process focus and an outcome focus is a fundamental shift. And it's one that I, when I'm coaching people, I'm constantly asking them, okay, I get it. You want to move to this like case management system, right? What's the outcome that you're looking for from that? What is important to you that those processes will make your life better? That's fantastic. And it's kind of funny when you mentioned that I'm, I'm kind of triggered. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say <laughs> well, a little bit triggered was the situation too, when we're in the process of managing people's marketing campaigns, there's people who certainly have a process focus. I'll leave it at that. Um, but yep. a lot of the times too, it's like, I feel like, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those bells you can't really unring. It's like, I think once you get to the point where you've had success, I would bet at some stages, people who try to shift that and then miss the gap and then they triple down on the process focus for the next two years or something like that. Absolutely. How do you coach people through letting go of process successfully for the first time? And like, what kind of mental hangups do you find with, with people resisting that or that, that might not even lead them to the point where they're not even asking themselves that question? That is such an ingrained, interesting belief mechanism that people have. It requires an initial leap of faith in a way, but the way that I try and frame the leap of faith for them is like the leap of faith from uh, The Last Crusade, right? Indiana Jones is he's not like he's taking a quote unquote leap of faith, but the bridge absolutely exists, right? He's not actually walking on an invisible thing. It exists. It's just, it just looks like the rock face, right? And you see that as the camera pans around and we can see the full rock bridge across. And so that's what I try and describe to them. Like what you are doing is not actually a leap of faith. It feels like it to you, to you because you're going to drop all of a sudden, but the bridge already exists. You're going to step down that bridge, 100% guaranteed. It's not invisible. It is a full rock formation in that moment. Now to get there, what I try and do is uh, I, I like to call it breaking your breakthrough. So I got this idea listening to, I love how TV shows come together because I was a theater major. And so like that process really interests me, especially the writer's room. The writer's room is very interesting. So I was listening to the Office Ladies podcast, which is about the production of The Office, uh, the TV show. And they're talking about the writer's room and the writer's room would have this, a board of note cards on it that would have little ideas on it. You know, it might be, they're going to have a, some type of seminar in the office, right? Like a harassment seminar in the office. And so they know that that's going to be funny. Some writer is going to be assigned that card and now they have to go and break that story. And the idea of breaking that story is now I must engineer everything else around it to break that story. Same idea with trying to achieve some type of breakthrough in your practice. Let's say it is this leap of faith where I tell you, Jan, if you go and find a salesperson and you don't try and force your sales method on them, you go and find someone who already has expertise in selling high-end something or other. They've, they've sold cars before, for example, or they've done large catering orders possibly, or they've done events management, which usually has big budgets. Find that person and plug them into your system. And let them do their relationship building, their selling tactics. When you get that person on board, if I can get you to hire that person and you see how, oh my gosh, I was able to completely let go of that and it got better because I didn't interfere, that will radically change the game. So I had this happen with one of my private clients last year. 
he, he had two uh, part-time employees in his practice. So smaller firm, estate planning, two part-time employees. And you can't live with two part-time employees. They were doing every other day scheduling. I told him, if you hire a full-time employee where you see that person's face every single day, and you have a through line day to day instead of every other day of tasks being assigned and how people operate, it will completely change your relationship with your practice. He was trying to stop having all these crazy evening meetings, all this other weird scheduling stuff. Of course, a lot of that scheduling issue happened because you have people who are coming in every other day. And so they don't know the little uh, anecdotal stuff that the other person knows about how the schedule is going to operate and all this. They're almost competing against each other. So I finally convinced him to stop thinking about how it's supposed to work and just get your full-time person. He did it. Next month, we're back on the phone, private client call. He goes, Charlie, why didn't you convince me to do that earlier? I was like, I've been working on you for six <laughs> months to do, make that change, right? And I'm sure you've seen that experience as well. Like I've been waiting, I told you three months, three months ago, I have the notes here. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I mean, that's the thing too, just like one of these, uh, like, you know, one of my favorite uh, Joseph Campbell quotes is, you know, the treasure that you seek lives in the, the cave you fear to enter. I'm butchering it, but you get the idea. But it's like one of these situations, like a lot of the times, the stuff that you're able to kind of let go of, which takes a lot of courage, yeah. it takes a lot of trust. And takes the right person in your corner sometimes to, to help you across that bridge, right? Yeah. But um, okay, Charlie, this has been a fantastic conversation. And I want to bring it to something for the person out there that is a little bit earlier in the journey. So if you had like a quick tactical tip, let's say you got somebody who's two, three years solo, um, what would you have for that person? Like what are kind of like some low hanging fruit stuff that you see for people that are at that level? So in terms of growing the practice, when you're at that level, two things really need to happen. One, you really need to decide who you are for and stop trying to market in a way that is to not offend people. That's some of the worst marketing is marketing that is engineered to not offend is designed to appease people who would never become your actual clients. That is wasting your time. It comes from a very natural protective instinct to preserve what we would call maybe our professional reputation, to not want to offend people. But let me just say, I've had a lot of really rough things said about me over the years. And it hurt at first, but eventually I realized it doesn't matter because what I've done is I've created a big old raving fan base over here. And those people are the more important people for me. So from a, a kind of baseline mental standpoint, but tactically, Pursue referrals earlier on than you expect, especially referrals from other attorneys, like from a very practical way, whenever we want a member to get a quick win, we have what we call our ultimate referral system. And I just point them in that direction. I'm like, look, if you do 50% of what we ask you to do in the ultimate referral system, you're going to come out with a big old win. Like, I just know that I've seen it time and time and time again. And then make sure that you are making bets regularly that never gets stalled out and think like, okay, this is, this is the whole thing, right? I've already won the game. You should be making, and at that level, we, we like to say you make $1,000 bets, right? You bet $1,000 on a new Facebook campaign. You bet $1,000 on Google local service ads. You keep making and placing these $1,000 bets. And yeah, a lot of them are going to fail. Holy smokes, a lot of them are going to fail. And you're going to feel like, well, gosh, I've wasted $20,000 in bets. But that 21st bet that you make, could pay off $200,000. And so you never pay attention to the bets that you lost out on. Like that's the, in your business, you're working with investor capital math, right? The big investment capital firms out there, they're looking for one out of maybe 100 businesses they invest in to go big, to hit the unicorn stats, billion dollar valuation software company. It means the rest of the, the other 99 bets don't even matter for them. So that, that is, that's what I'm trying to instill in those folks. Yeah. And like to, to bring it back a little bit too, like once you have that first one that ends up working out, that's a Rubicon moment. Like you're never going to, well, you'll hopefully feel a little bit less bad. And then I would say one other thing too, I guess the reason that those, those are going to be thousand dollar bets is, you know, don't ever walk into the casino with uh, the money you need for rent next month. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Whereas, you know, once it's a bigger firm, once you turn over into seven figures, you start making $10,000 bets. And that's another fundamental change, right? Because that's scary. You're used to making thousand dollar bets, but the truth is at the seven-figure level, the reason you start making $10,000 bets is because you have to start engineering longer term. So $10,000 bets might be $2,000 a month of a campaign, but I'm going to commit to it for five months minimum. 
right? Mm-hmm. Instead of having needing it to pop off right away. I'm now going to use time as an asset. I'm going to buy that time through my money on this bet because a thousand dollar bet only pays off so much. And if you are in a seven figure firm and you're constantly trying to place as many thousand dollar bets as possible, you're going to be just mired in the busy work of marketing as opposed to the bigger strategy work of marketing, which is your responsibility at seven figures. So you place a $10,000 bet instead, and you look for that to mature for you, which by the way, the interesting thing is when you do put more money into the bet, you tend to think more critically about the opportunity, which naturally improves what you put into it, which then of course improves the outcome, right? When you give it more money, more funding, more confidence, more focus on it, you tend to improve your outcome naturally. And we almost force ourselves to do it by placing a bigger bet. Yeah, that's really interesting. All right, Charlie, this has been a fantastic way to close this out. Amazing conversation for people who have been enjoying this. What's the best way to get into your guys's world? So you've got to go to greatlegalmarketing.com. And well, you know, I'll, I'll give people the shortcut from here. You can email me directly, Charlie, C-H-A-R-L-E-Y, E-Y, so Charlie with an E-Y at the end, at greatlegalmarketing.com. So for folks out there who have listened to this podcast, consumed all this, and you're at this point, go ahead and email me directly. Let me know that you heard about me on this podcast, and we'll, we'll, we'll set up something cool. We'll get on the phone together, talk it out. Or if you're sort of someone who's like, eh, I feel like I'm really early on in my journey, go to greatlegalmarketing.com. We do have free resources there that you should absolutely consume, but really, you know, if we can get on the phone, talk about your practice a little bit and find out what the right solution is for your practice, I would love to do it. I love growing law firms. I love what I do. Just like I'm sure you love what you do, Jan. I love what I do. I love working with law firm owners. I love the unique psychology behind it. I love the financial inner workings because it does, you know, it's different from like working with a restaurant where everything is on this super tight margin. We do get to place these legitimate bets and that is exciting. So man, I love it. Yeah. I'm feeling the energy too. That's the thing. You cannot fake saying that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the realist, but um, Charlie, it's been an absolute pleasure. And for everybody else, I will see you guys next Tuesday, 8 a.m. on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you so much, Jan. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode. 